freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and with the help of comrades Palace Shaw, Roxana Espos, Light Eilie, and Bernadine Dorn, we're broadcasting in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim. That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We're broadcasting from California, the San Francisco Bay Area, to narrow it down a bit, and Oakland, to be precise. This is the traditional land of the Ohlone and Miwok peoples, and we acknowledge them in their full humanity. All of us who stand on freedom's side can and should remember and honor the long history of stolen land and resources, genocide, exploitation, and also resistance continuing to this day as we pledge to work to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. We're gathered just up the street from Fruitvale Station, the site of the police murder of Oscar Grant Jr. in 2008. If you haven't seen Ryan Coogler's brilliant feature film, capturing that moment, as well as the wide, wide universe in which that moment exploded, you must. And we're somewhere between the big Oakland powwow brought to life in Tommy Orange's excellent debut novel, There, There, and the Black Panther Party's founding in 1966. Another film to see, this one a documentary, is Stanley Nelson's The Black Panther Party, Vanguard of the Revolution. There's a lot to see and explore here in Oakland, and I'm excited to be here visiting my brother and his family, two of our kids and their wondrous partners, four of our grandchildren, and lots and lots of friends. We're transmitting, as always, on the Freedom Frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be, but is not yet. Our first traditional feature is the reading of a poem. And because we're here in Oakland, let's listen to the dazzling East Bay poet, Shanaka Hodge, reading her poem, All Power to the People, Black Panthers at 50, which she read at the Oakland Museum of California. Let's call a spade a spade. Let's call a pitchfork a pitchfork. Let's just say we know what a posse look like, what a mob can do. We know about chasing ghosts. We know about finding ourselves in dark rooms. We know about safety and numbers. Let's admit that the town people ain't never been afraid of the giant, that the body has always been bigger than the head, that the power has always been with, of, and for the people. So let's just tell the truth. Let's just be honest. Let's talk back. Let's march to firmery. Let's outline some points and let us speak of police who will step over our sleeping children to shoot their fathers and ask why they woke and ask why we have guns. We cannot forget how whales sound escaping from a siren or a boy. Let us call little Bobby's name. Let's call little Bobby's mama. 
Let's put her on the phone with Wanda Johnson or Sabrina Fulton. Let's talk about how easy it is to choke, how America's gravest mass shooting is durational, collective. Let's say wounded knee and never again. Let's say move on HQ and never again. Let's say it in the same breath as Flint, in the same water as everywhere we have been drowned. Let's say America and mean necessarily the trail we wept to get here, the choppy ocean that fought to kill us. Let's say Los Angeles and Philadelphia and Accra and mean the parts of the world who knew revolution as we did, black and impoverished and just coming back from a war like always, Let's talk about money, as if the first U.S. bailout wasn't stocked in the hull of a slave ship. Oh, but we ain't supposed to talk about that. We ain't supposed to talk about cotton. We ain't supposed to talk about that gin. We ain't supposed to talk about Jim Crow. We supposed to be post. We ain't supposed to ask for what's owed. We're supposed to be thankful to a tyrant. We supposed to kowtow. We supposed to back down. We supposed to not talk about our ache or what we've missed or how we ain't never had a language or a flag or even a proper family reunion. We are never going to know the names of the people who died for us to live in terror. Let us admit that the idea of Africa is still an offense punishable by death. We are not to dream of going home, not to speak of what has been stolen, not to feed our children, not even to let our hair take flight. We ain't supposed to do anything but die. Not nothing. We supposed to die. We supposed to not even know we supposed to die. We supposed to not speak that we know we're supposed to die. We're supposed to watch our sisters rub crack chalk on their eyes. We supposed to sit and eat stale crust and look on from the outside. What kind of party is that? Let's start our own. We supposed to sit here and wait till somebody let us? Let us stop waiting on freedom like it's the whooping cough. Stop hoping freedom is gonna court us on a Thursday date night. Quit crossing our legs and biting our time and biting our nails. It's our birthright and they will lie to us and tell us we are violent for wanting peace. Peace is our dowry. We wed to a democracy that keeps taking off its ring. We married to a decadent system that mocks squalor and honor. We saw what they do to our leaders. We see how they trying to string us up. There are bodies on the asphalt. There are members in holding. There are lines drawn all around us and they closing in tight. There's a courthouse. There's a free breakfast. There's Emery's pen. There are Tarika's fingers, Sonia's poems, and Bobby's plans in kitchen. There are instruments of light and joy. There are folks waiting on orders. There are children in the hallway singing songs about our mothers. These blues people in their black leather. There are teenagers sneaking into our meetings. There are old folks who are both afraid and resentful. They didn't do this first, but some did. Some dusted off their pistols and got right to it. Right here on Grover MLK. Right here on 10th Street. Right here out front of McClyman's and Merritt. Come on, real revolution. Come, real revolution. Come, real fire and fake alibi. Come some Sunday when some brother comes to with a visceral realization that he lost sanity to a country that would have his breath on a plaque, would have his head without thinking and mounted. He's either going to want to get even or get freedom. The whole universe stands to benefit if this black man is free. The truth of the matter is white folks' freedom depends on ours, and we've outgrown a binary that excludes all other comrades. We're talking about all the people, all the people, all the people. Let's take all the power, all the power, all the power, all the people, all the people, all the people, all the power, all the power, all power to the people. Our second regular feature is a free write. So pause the podcast for just a moment and write wildly. No need for edits or revisions in response to this prompt. Oh, and if you're walking or jogging or driving right now, just pause, keep the headphones on, and meditate for a couple of moments on this prompt. Since we'll be talking today about education, among many other things, what are the necessary features of education in and for democracy? Or, what does it mean to educate free people for freedom? Education for what? For whom? Toward what end? Okay, start writing, start meditating, and we'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. 
Welcome back. I'm talking today with one of my best friends, a freedom fighter and a comrade through decades of struggle together, a writer and a teacher, an inspiration to me and to countless others, generation after generation. But rather than say any more, let me give the honor of introducing my younger brother to the organization Youth Speaks and to the incomparable poet you heard a moment ago, Shanaka Hodge. Thank you. I am so honored to be here. I stood on this mark 22 years ago, maybe to the day, and competed in this here slam. I can say, and I say often, that You Speak saved my life. You Speaks came to me when I was a ninth grader in a Berkeley High School classroom. I was unsure of myself. I didn't think I fit anywhere in the world. And to be honest, I was ready to make shifts that were to my detriment. And You Speaks came in. But we forget that You Speaks doesn't come in without a, without a link, without a bridge, without an educator who sees a student, who sees a need. And Rick Ayers was that teacher. Rick Ayers was that educator for me and a bevy of young writers that came out of Berkeley High and to be truthful, all of the East Bay. I'm talking about people who are great organizers and teachers and activists in their own right, like Luke Brecky Meisner. I'm talking about educator, actor, poet, goats, uh, egots like David Diggs and Rafael Casal. I'm talking about my cast allies in Chris Wilson and Greg Mitchell and the people who are shifting the gears here and outside. I'm standing in shoes that were co-designed by Ardarius Bell, who's a cast alumni <laughs> and a Youth Speaks alum. Rick was there before anybody knew what Youth Speaks was, and he saw it as a tool that could help save not just my life, but the lives of all of us around. Aside from that, Rick has made time in his illustrious career. He's been teaching for decades, and every single student he has has his phone number, has his committed support, and he shows up at all of our events. I don't even know how it's possible. Rick, you've been pouring into us for years, and Eileen, you've been pouring into us by proxy. I'm so thankful to you and your family. I'm so grateful that you taught us how to teach and how to learn and how to be accountable to each other and to the world. Thank you for teaching me how to use the microphone and the pen <laughs> and the art classroom and the ceramic space and the classes we cut <laughs> and the <laughs> curriculum we designed together. Thank you for investing in me as an individual and to this community as a whole. <sighs> Thank you for choosing rest for yourself and modeling that as well. Thank you. Thank you for serving as a line cook in the Vietnam War and educating veterans from then forward. Thank you for working with immigrant children and survivors of rape and for teachers at USF. Thank you for all you've poured in for so long. Thank you for standing up to assholes who called you a washed up terrorist. Thank you for teaching us how to vote. Thank you for standing with your brother and your comrades. Thank you for teaching us how to weather the weather. I love you so very much. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick Ayers. I'm speechless, speechless. What can I say? I'm going back, thinking back to the early days with Hodari, James, Bamuthi, and Mush, and all these amazing young poets. And so uh, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> Um, as an old teacher, can I ask all the teachers here to stand up and student teachers? Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> the irony here is that spoken word, young people speaking for themselves, sometimes scares teachers. I would hear teachers uncomfortable because, as one said, these poets are incredible. I'm afraid I can't teach them anything. Because here were students reading, studying, practicing, all outside of our instruction. Indeed, students were running to Youth Speaks, running, even with no promise of a grade, no points in the competition game. They were running away from schools so they could begin to learn. It's, it's rough, rough, man. But if we teachers were open enough, if we were humble enough, we could learn to listen, we could make some space for this spoken word revolution to soar. And for you poets and the poet friends, your words, your actions are needed now more than ever. We have politicians banning books, banning learning, banning even the humanity of young people. As you speak shows us, the next generation can speak for itself, and nothing will stop you from speaking. Finally, I would ask all the young people to take a good look at your teachers. Sometimes you think this job is kind of corny. Your teachers are boring. They don't understand you. But know this. These people are on the front lines right now, dedicating their careers and risking their lives for your freedom of thought, for your future. So we teachers thank you and we promise to continue the struggle. In the words of the freedom fighters of Mozambique, a luta continua, victoria e certa. Okay, Rick, it's great to see you. Um, Wonderful to be here. Thank you for coming. And uh, that was some introduction you got. Oh, I know. I was, I was a little bit flabbergasted and floored to, to hear Shanaka uh, talking that way about our shared history. Shanaka uh, is a phenomenon, as you know, and uh, I don't take credit for everything she's turned out to be, but I feel honored to have been in her presence during some yeah. formative years. Well, that's part of what makes you the teacher you are, is that you don't actually think you're the center of the of the room or the center of the, or the star of the show, but you've always been able to put students forward. And uh, Janak is only one, but you had her in class how many years ago? Oh, gee, uh, it would be about 22 years ago, because she's, she's a grown-up uh, artist now. And how did, how did Youth Speaks get started, and what did your classroom have to do with that? Well, Youth Speaks was a, uh, an attempt to build off of the, uh, the whole spoken word slam poetry phenomenon, which really, I would say, started with the New Yorican Poets Cafe in New York. And it, it was a, it was kind of adult poetry slams, you know, poetry contests. And um, there was a, actually a very good documentary, which I haven't uh, been able to see, called Slam Nation. 
haven't been able to find it more recently. But um, we saw it. I showed it to the students, and we loved it, and we loved the little way they did the judging. And without anyone else telling us what to do, we just started making poetry slams, first in the classroom, and then we would do a monthly poetry slam thing in the um, in the chemistry lab on wow. Friday why nights. The, why the chemistry lab? Well, because it's a big room and it had a sort of risers, you know, the, the, the room goes up. And it was, it was just well set up, uh, bigger than our normal classroom. But at the same time, uh, Youth Speaks was getting started as a nonprofit idea to have young people do spoken word. I think that was happening all over the country, but it was very powerful here. People like uh, Mark Bamuti Joseph, who's now in New York, um, Hodari Davis, James Cass, they put this together. And uh, they started going out, working with young people and creating spoken word as, as a real liberatory practice, you know? And what was so cool about it, well, a lot of things are cool about it, but what was exciting about it was that um, the the young people would work so hard to develop their poetry. They would talk to each other, they'd struggle, they'd rewrite, and they, they, they would do all these things that we couldn't get them to do in class for normal yeah. assignments. You know, they they were running out of school to these nonprofits like Youth Radio and Youth Speaks, where they weren't getting a grade, they weren't getting paid, but they were being heard, you know. Mm. And uh, so it was a a very exciting thing. And and as I've I've said, in many ways, young people, for instance, young men, to to get respect in high school, often are told, you got to be a jock, you got to be a jerk, you got to be like, you know, throw your shoulders around. And here was a, a venue where uh, a, a diverse group of uh, young people and young men got a lot of props just for sharing a poem and one that was very vulnerable, one that made everyone cry. And that's the opposite of the sort of um, framing of manhood in American high school. So it was thrilling to see them doing this. And again, the teachers were there facilitating, but really, you know, I, I, I tell the story that there was a, another English teacher we invited to a slam, and she looked at me and said, oh, my God, I can't teach these kids anything, which was a sadness because <laughs> she thought they're ahead of me, which was interesting. But, of course, if they're ahead of you, that's a wonderful thing. But um, so it, it really and, and, more, and more than that, more than that, if they're ahead of you. Maybe you're not teaching the right thing. Maybe you're too focused on judgment, <laughs> judgment and grades and hierarchy and not focused enough on the next thing and the next thing. Because Absolutely. there's no limit to what intellectual curiosity can do for you. Um, right, right. It, 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 it's humbling. And, and the thing that people don't realize outside, and by the way, uh, you one time said to me when I was doing my early attempt at teacher writing, said, don't always tell the the teacher hero story. You know, you're tempted as a new new teacher because you saw something happen and it's so you're suffering so much. And some kid came up and said, you did this and you want to write that out. But it's very important to recognize that mostly they're not teacher hero stories. Mostly they're teacher, they're, they're student hero stories and teachers can facilitate that. But it, it's definitely true that um, young people 
given the opportunity, um, they they want to they want to express their freedom. They want to express their ideas, you know. And and so I, lately, uh, you may notice there's this the cult of the science of reading is back, and it's really just a new name for the phonics. And and they're like, this is the way to do it. Phonics works. They will not be able to do that to one of my students who refuses to look up, refuses to show up to class, refuses to look at the book. How's this phonics going to work? So, mm -hmm. I mean, the idea of reading as some technical abstract thing and not, because I had high school kids who could not read. So the question is, you know, you think, oh, they've learned that in third grade. No. Um, so the question is, how are we going to um, really engage students so they care? And uh, the science of reading people have no answer for that, you know. And I've seen students, by the way, who come in, say, sophomore, junior year, they really can't read or they can barely read. If motivated, if suddenly they realize there's something to it and it means something, they can catch up. They don't, you know, you say, oh, there's five years behind, they're six years behind. Give them a couple months, they'd be right there. So this idea of years behind is also ridiculous. Well, so, there's this idea that that haunts education, and that is that there is such a thing as the fourth grader or the sixth uh -huh. grader, and half the kids Absolutely. are always, always, you know, failing to meet that bar. And you know, it's I've, I've often thought, you know, that every fourth grade teacher in the Chicago public schools is angry at every third grade teacher because the kids arrive yeah. not ready, and yeah. and every high school teacher is angry at everybody because the kids aren't ready. But yes. you've you've taught recently in San Quentin Prison. I have taught at Stateville Prison in Illinois, and we do have students who come to us functionally illiterate. And yeah. what's astonishing, I teach memoir writing. What's astonishing is exactly as you say how quickly they can master things. One of the funniest things that happened this term for me was one kid who learned English while in prison and was still pretty pretty ragged around the edges with writing. By the end of the term, he said, well, I now consider myself a poet. And one of the things he asked for me early on, he asked me for a grammar. I brought him Elements of Style by Strunk and White. And immediately, the 14 other students wanted a copy. So I distributed 15 copies <laughs> exactly. of Strunk and White. But it was all because they were motivated to get their memoirs underway. And they weren't doing it for a grade. What could be That could be further from their, their <laughs> minds. They weren't doing it to please me. They had a story to tell, and they felt that they were hanging by their fingernails, unable to tell it. And so they wanted all the tools they needed to tell it right. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, this was a this was early on in my teaching, so it was instructive to me. And Tanaka was one of the amazing people at this time, but there were many others um, in this period, you know. And and it was a free speech space. It was a space where all kinds of uh, experimentation happened. But, you know, okay, if you say you have a free speech space, uh, and, you know, by the way, I'm sort of a, uh, I was sort of a beat writer, so I was thinking, I was telling them, if you're writing poetry, don't rhyme. You're just supposed to, like, do what's from your heart. Uh, and, and they were rhyming. They are writing little rhyming couplets because they're listening to hip-hop, and they were doing hip-hop music. And uh, I had to step back and say, stop with this don't rhyme thing, you know. Um, but rhyming is cool. I mean, if you, you yeah, rhyme, whatever, whatever they yeah. want to do. But the other thing that came from hip hop was at a certain point, 
a number of men, one night, one of our slams, a number of the young guys were doing these really sexist kind of rapey, um, evil uh, poems, you know, and that was, they were being badass. And it was horrible. And then here's this teacher's dilemma. What do we do? What do we do? Should we uh, tell, no, you can't say that. You can't do that, which, of course, you, you may have to do sometimes. But we did not what, know what to do. So we met afterwards with some of the young women poets and teachers. And what should we do? And so the solution we came up with, I think, was elegant, which was the next slam is going to be an all-women slam. And it was only young women students who were going to do slams. And it worked Fabulously, because they, of course, they had a, a better stance, and it never came back. We never had to just uh, bring the hammer down, although I think we might have had to at a certain point. But, you know, they were expressing a certain kind of um, discourse that was out there. But I love yeah. the way it was It was possible to shift with the students in the center. Right. You know, you, you I know you object to naming the superstars like Shanaka and saying that that was my great accomplishment. But I do have, but I do like to brag on your teaching. So I'm going to shout out a couple of things. I'm going to say that the last performance on Broadway of Hamilton, David Diggs, not only invited you, but he shouted you out from the stage. Uh, Here's my high school teacher. And David was one of the principals in Hamilton. And uh, that was pretty cool. And then he and Rafael Casals went on to make, uh, a movie and then a, a TV series in blind which you're in, in blind spotting, in which you're a character. Yeah. Well, my name comes in. That's called my my 15 seconds of fame. Yeah, but um, your name your name comes in, but the guy who they have playing you is really a dweed. So uh, he's he a, well, he, he he he's not as cool as I am as a character, but he's an incredible actor. Right. Um, right. But I will say, uh, here's the thing, man. You, um, your your stories about me are much better than my actual life. So well, I'm going to have me, you continue to tell the stories. Yeah, let me, I let me, go, t- let me I tell the stories and you just step back and take the praise. <laughs> Even when they're go, false. I did go to see <clears throat> Hamilton <clears throat> with all of whatever problems it has uh, on the last night that David was in it because he, he rolled out after a while. And I sat with his mom. And it was very sweet. He did not call me out from the stage, but, you know, we could keep that in. And uh, we did hang out backstage. And then afterwards, there was sort of like a party with all the most beautiful people in New York at a bar. I lasted till two, and I left because I was a square. I think they went a lot longer. (laughs) Of course. But one of the things I wanted to point out, because you do, you do, I've seen you teach many, often, and... I've admired your teaching. You and I have written a lot about teaching together. Yeah. Two notes on that. One is that on the question of not singling out the the folks who go on to great success, you taught a journalism class in which two young women won a national, uh, a California wide award for journalism. And I remember, and we could talk about that incident later if you'd like, but what I remember is coming to class after they had won this big recognition and television was after them and all these things were happening. And I said to them, are you going to go into journalism now? And one of the young women said, 
we've already run the best award we could win. I'm going to go into something else, you know? <laughs> and, and what I liked about it was that it wasn't the winning of the award that mattered. What mattered is her own sense of herself as a person in the world with an identity that could do many things. Yes. And it wasn't a matter of finding her career when she was 16. It was a matter of having that kind of juice, that kind of rocket power underneath her, which I think a good classroom can, can give kids. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's a great story. And um, I like the way you tell it again. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but, Thank uh, but can I tell you something about that journalism piece? Yeah. Uh, we might as well go there. Uh, well, you you might as well tell the story of what happened. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was, um, I was the advisor for the high school newspaper, uh, the Berkeley High Jacket. And Berkeley, you know, Berkeley is a college town, but it's actually a very diverse uh, high school because there's all kinds of communities with gentrification becoming less and less diverse. But there was a lot of different uh, kids there from all the communities. And what happened was a young woman died in a, uh, a nearby apartment with carbon monoxide poisoning because she was in there um, fixing up his, these apartments for rental. And she was Indian. She was from India. And uh, she was 15. And th the thing is, the Chronicle did a one-paragraph story, just like, eh, girl dies. But... Uh, we were able to look at it and say, wait, she's 15. Does she go to our school? What, what's happening? And look into it more deeply. And what the point was, they they started investigating and asking other Indian students about this girl and about the situation. And the, uh, the, the this is, makes my main point about student journalism is it's not that they're amateur journalists, it's that they're young journalists. In other words, they see things that the adults don't see. So there's things they can't do. They can't interview, you know, uh, Anthony Blinken, but they can see what's happening on the ground. And they could see something was wrong here. And what they ended up exposing and uncovering was that this big landlord, uh, Lucky Ready Ready, had a lot of immigrant families kind of in indentured servitude to him. He would bring them over. They'd work for him for free. And this girl was kind of, you know, semi-slave labor, sleeping on the floor in these apartments, working on them. There was a carbon monoxide error in the heat heating system, and she died. It was terrible. Um, but they wrote the story that broke the story, uh, that broke this, this scandal. But more interesting than that, this is what I... This is what I really love. And I, I, I went back and found kind of the emails to families about this and so on. But what happened is, as you said, there was a feeding, a media feeding frenzy. Everyone wanted a part of this story. And there's a pretty good story in People magazine about the funky little, you know, uh, journalist who exposed this evil man. Um, but, you know, Good Morning America wanted them. Uh, Vogue magazine wanted them. But the problem was they wanted to reframe the story in the way their own heads needed it to be. And Good Morning America insisted that it was a story about a sex slave ring. They wanted the sex slave ring because that was the exoticized, eroticized Indian woman. And it wasn't a sex slave ring. It wasn't dentured servitude. 
And um, we went back and forth, and Good Morning America would not let go of, of the framing they wanted. And so our students said, we're not going. We're not going to do that. What? You're not going to go? We offered you this opportunity. No, we're not doing it. They had a, a tiff with the editor of uh, uh, Vogue who said, I can't believe a couple of, you know, two-bit high school kids are refusing to call me back, you know, blah, blah, blah. But what they learned was more was super important after that, which was that there's a narrative that the media wants to pursue, and you have to fight very hard if you want to resist that. So anyway, mm -hmm. it was a great journalism experience for everyone. Yeah, and they really did do a great job, but I, I, I loved their integrity. Well, it's not only the integrity of the young women, it's also the entire class became, because it became a lesson for everybody. Yeah. It wasn't just that they learned about the kind of sharks that are out there and the kind of reframing that, that makes the media so fundamentally dishonest in certain places, but they, oh, the whole class participated in that. Yeah. And I believe they, they got some money and, and sent it to the to the kids' uh, village in in India in yeah. South Asia. Oh, well, what happened was uh, Disney bought movie rights, and and after going back and forth, we said, "Okay, you know." And they they gave the students uh, the two students got some scholarship money, and then we had some other money that went to um, to the family and. Uh, and again, I was very nervous about how this was going to go because I could picture the Disney writers making this thing about the plucky white right. girls. And, uh, and then there would be this alcoholic, uh, journalism, uh, advisor who would say, you can't do this. Right. <laughs> and I would be the worst guy. Yeah. But, well, that, that would be okay. <laughs> that would be, that's how they were going to write it. I was sure. But in any case, they, they had the option for a couple of years, but they never rolled it into a film. So. <laughs> Just as well. You've got blind spotting to rely on. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned a minute ago a, a, a similar kind of project, which you were deeply involved in, which was youth radio. Yeah. And it came out of Berkeley High School initially, yeah. out of Oakland. Um, talk a little bit about the origin of youth radio and, and what the, the ways in which that did something very similar for the students. Well, youth radio uh, actually came out of some some radio activists, uh, Ellen O'Leary, who had worked at KPFA and actually worked at NPR too, and realized that young people weren't having a, an opportunity to really make radio. And this was before digital and everything like that. In fact, when you were when you had audio tape, you were you were gluing together physical pieces of tape mm -hmm. and. Uh, and she started this nonprofit called Youth Radio, which again was an opportunity for young people to get on the air. And they did it in different ways. They did it on KPFB, which was the second station of KPFA. Uh, they did it by um, putting out kind of podcast type of pieces. And the kids would do music shows. They would do news shows. They would do feature shows. And um, again, they they would have youth teachers who would um teach the um the new ones uh what what to what it was about and then they would practice and you would you know they had these old i'm talking about in the 90s the late 90s they had mm. the old terrible computers uh 
that up and and uh, reel to reel tape. But yeah, but I think it was amazing. Work. Yeah, it's amazing because it predated podcasts, and now kids oh, yeah. have lots of other ways in. But what impressed me, I mean, I, I remember so much, and sometimes NPR would pick up a story, a national story. After a while, they started getting on the NPR. Yeah, yeah, they they the kids would make these documentaries and. I don't know if you remember this one, but the documentary I remember so well was a kid did a documentary about sagging. Yeah. And sagging is when you wear your pants down so low that you can see the guy's underwear or butt or whatever. And he went around and he interviewed a bunch of kids about sagging. And, oh, yeah, I see you're sagging. Why are you sagging? And kids would talk about it. He gets this one kid and he says, hey, man, I see you're sagging. He says, yeah, I, I sag every day. And he says, do you do it all the time? He said, no, no. I go to my grandmother's or I go looking for a job. I pull my pants up. And he says, I'm bilingual in sagging. That actually <laughs> knocked, that knocked me out. Yeah. <laughs> I, wow. He was code switching. <laughs> yeah, I'm just code switching. Exactly. <laughs> well, these are two projects, but I think your entire teaching practice, your pedagogy, your curriculum, every way you approached it was always about foregrounding the students and creating the, the environment for freedom, for inquiry, for curiosity. But at the same time, you worked in a big comprehensive high school. So you're working for the man much yeah. of the time. How do you how do you struggle with that? How do you reconcile that? You know, I was just thinking about that this morning. Um it is it is a contradiction that that you're living with. And basically to me, First of all, let me say this. I, I just saw this right-wing website that said talked about all the 60s radicals who are now teachers. And they're saying, they're teaching your kids. Right, and, uh, right. It's kind of true because I feel like in the 80s. I, I wish mean, it were truer. I wish it were yeah. truer. But okay. I feel like in the 80s, I, you know, a lot of us, we really thought the revolution was going to happen in the 60s and 70s. We were, we were 10 years away from the whole thing. And when it turns out that wasn't true, there's a lot of kind of depression, or at least political depression, or kind of disorientation, or what am I doing? For me, I felt redeemed and re-energized and clarified in my in my enthusiasm when I got into teaching. I realized, mm -hmm. oh my God, I, I really have something I have to do every day that's important. And um, But yeah, to be a teacher... You're also working for the state. You're a state agent, you know, and, and I and you have to do these things of the state. I had, had to do grading. One time I gave everyone an A just to see how it would go and, and to force myself to motivate them without a grade. And then I got called down to the vice principals, like, what are you doing, doing? Man, you're supposed to sort these kids. <laughs> you can't give everyone an A. But anyway, uh you're working for the state. I did grading, I did discipline i did uh you know the things i'm supposed to do and so you're partly an agent of the state but you're at least partly as much as you can figure out an agent of liberation and the students see that so well they appreciate that if you're 30 percent an agent of liberation they they say hey this is great we can actually do some stuff here um so i uh you, you live with that contradiction you know working in prison it's 95% uh, constrained by the state and 5% the vision of freedom. You know, it's like mm -hmm. Neruda, the poet's obligation to bring mm -hmm. the uh, the ocean in. So, you know, the, the thing you're saying, though, about 30% or 5% or whatever it happens to be, what I think is important about that formulation is that you can't use that 
30% or that 5% to its maximum, unless you recognize that that's what you have. If you say to yourself, well, I'm beaten down, I'm just an agent of the state, you will never rise yourself up to do the work that could be done. And I think, again, that's what's admirable, admirable to me about so much of what I witnessed in your teaching was that you took that 30% and wrung it dry. Yeah. Well, and, and it's also true that uh, you can't pretend the 30% is 100%. In other words, I see young teachers full of enthusiasm, and they'll walk in and say, you're free. I'm not going to oppress you. What should we put on the curriculum? What would you like to do? And the students look at them like, hey, teach. What, what are we supposed to do today? You know, because they've been socialized by 10 years of the shit we have. So they, the students... They actually need you to come in and play the teacher role, even if the if the principal isn't looking over your shoulders. So you have to you have to kind of get into a kind of school game, even if even if you kind of think some of it is crap. And and by the way, here's another thing I have to confess: a lot of times I failed. Many times I failed. As a matter of fact, you know, in writing instruction, I always had this beef with people in the English department because. A lot of people will teach the five-paragraph essay and teach structure first. The first paragraph has to have your thesis. Second paragraph is evidence one. Third paragraph is evidence two. And yada, yada, yada. And they'll teach structure, structure, structure. And the kids are, this is so boring. So my view would be idea-centered. You have to have an idea. Let's have an idea that you're thinking about. something. So you have to get them going, something they want to write about. And then yeah. they start writing, and then perhaps in rewrite, you get it better, clear, clearer, because you're like, I don't understand what you're going for here. And mm -hmm. all of the stuff comes out in the end. And when we had sort of like a 10th grade uh, local high school writing process, my students did great, but I never taught that structure. Yeah. But I will also say this. Sometimes they failed me. Sometimes I thought I had the cool idea, and they would be like, uh, theirs is easy. I'm gonna just yeah. I'm gonna do my chemistry. I'm gonna do something else. And right. so uh, I don't want to say that uh, it always succeeded. I had this cool idea about uh, writing for liberation, and some students just collapsed behind that and didn't like it. So, so uh, you know, you have to be uh, willing to try and fail, and and recognize that there's no easy answer. That's why there's no such thing as the science of reading. Give me a yeah. break. I I, uh, I hear you, but I reject it. I want to just remember you as a star teacher every minute of the day. So um, that's keep telling my, my story, man. I'm going to keep telling your story. Um, <laughs> but you know, I think your thing about young teachers coming in, uh, there's two aspects to it. One you mentioned is this idea that I'll just let them do what they want. And nobody wants that. <laughs> um, because you're not a you're not a cipher in the classroom. You're a participant, and you don't have to be godlike in order to be a full, authentic participant. But the other thing is that young people leave teaching very quickly sometimes because they're not able to. They're crushed by the being an agent of the state, and yeah. I think that that your way of framing the dialectic is hugely important. Find a way to be fully free when you are free, and Give to Caesar what Caesar demands, you know. Yeah. Um, but my experience with kids is often, and not just kids, my adult students as well, 
is that they want to have a teacher who, number one, comes to teach. Right. They don't want somebody who comes not to teach. <laughs> you know, you're here. What, what are you doing here? So you have to come to teach. And the second thing is they want a teacher who recognizes their humanity and sees them large. So for me, I always have a, now that I teach adults mostly, I always have a syllabus and it's always filled with questions and opportunities to shift out. But I think it's important to have something. Um, yeah. yeah, it's really, uh, I think you hit on a central thing and it's so simple that it's um, banal and weird, but it, it is the central thing is that you see them, that you mm -hmm. see a human being in front of you. And and that could be very painful. You know, I went with some people at USF who do a border project, uh, and I went down to be the teacher at this border project. It was in uh, Matamoros, Mexico. It's a, it's a refugee camp, 3,000 people in Matamoros. And um, we were in Bronzeville, and we'd cross over every day. Very scary, very sad situation. This was right before the pandemic dropped. And um, I was the teacher. And these kids, every day, were running around, you know, playing and stuff. But they had no school. There was no classes. So uh, they asked me to teach a class. All I could do, and these are like, these are elementary kids, which isn't my strength. But they were, you know, fourth grade, fifth grade age kids. So we got out art supplies. So we did drawing and writing. And um, I just asked them to uh, draw where they saw their future, where they saw themselves in a year, and uh, and to write about it. And, oh, my God, I, I was so traumatized. You know, you know, people who do this kind of work, they get secondary trauma because they see this every day. People, social workers, people who work with, with refugees. I just saw it for a week, but it was, uh, I couldn't shake, you know, the pain of what these kids drew, the pictures they drew of, you know, hoping, you know, they'd have a picture of the border and the fence and them going across and, oh my God. And, uh, and they were living in tents, you know, they're sleeping on the ground. And, uh, these are real people. This really happens. And mm. I, I did feel again, like, wow, the, the most, painful and motivating and beautiful thing about being a teacher is being in the presence of all these amazing human beings, you know, well, you in know, a you very go, oppressive world, in a world yeah. that hates them. Well, and that's true of the, a lot of the kids, you know, inside the United States in marginalized yeah. communities, um, yeah. kids who are discarded, you know, kind of routinely in places like the South and West side of Chicago, East Oakland, uh, the reservations you know it's yeah. it's a tough tough world and and hanging in there as a teacher i mean part of what gives you you said that going to teaching gave you re-energized you but in some ways it gives you a purpose around you know fighting for humanity exactly absolutely and i uh you know teachers get burned out and teachers are suffering but i i really feel that um, it's kind of, I, I feel like this conversation about what's wrong and why are teachers leaving and why are they upset needs to be reframed because there's so much pressure put on them about learning loss, which I think is the fakest um, uh, framing you could have. 
Same way, same way. Well, well, because the problem we're facing is capitalist education, which is so terrible and top down and pushing passivity and and pushing um, uh, stratification, got disrupted by the pandemic. And the whole struggle after that was get everyone back in line, get them back in there studying, catch them up on everything. And I think the stress teachers are feeling is because of the demands on them. You know, you we could easily have said they didn't learn nothing in the pandemic. They learned a lot. They learned about nature. They learned about their families. And we could have done a better job of having class outside, uh, you know, moving around. There's a lot of ways that we could have embraced uh, the beauty of the space they were in instead of like, oh, my God, they're not learning fourth grade math right now. Well, you know, the, the, let's let me interject. They could have, they also could have been learning about capitalist medicine mm-hmm. and about the lack of a public health system, exactly. and about and, and about who the essential workers are and why they're discarded so easily. I mean, there was a lot to learn, right? And 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 by the way, they were learning. They weren't just empty ciphers. So the teachers are under all this pressure to get it back to the crap it was. And actually, the beginning, everyone was saying, these kids don't know how to go to school. They don't know how to do school. Right, because school is so unnatural. So I really feel bad for the suffering that teachers and students are going through. But the context is the the attempt to beat them back into a dysfunctional system. Yeah, and, the, and, the, and the kind of the sense that the only way you learn is if you're the target of instruction. Rather than grappling with the real world, I mean, again, thinking about your teaching, I mean, you can learn about literature, you can learn from literature, you can learn about nature, you can learn from nature. And I think that the pandemic was an opportunity lost in one sense because people like you know the the bureaucrat run the educational system in every state and in the nation um, think of it in a very linear way with you know with benchmarks and targets and so on which is not how people learn right and by the way the birds and uh the fish were kind of happy during the pandemic a lot of them came back and danced around because people weren't out there but yeah so i'm just saying that um uh you know we we kind of blame ourselves or we suffer in ways that uh, I think doesn't really name the, the, the reason we are and, and uh, the reason we are in this situation. And nevertheless, teaching will go on, schools will go on. And um, I love doing teacher education, working with these young teachers because they are on fire and they want to do this. And, yeah. My uh, experience teaching teachers is that they bring to the enterprise, exactly. They bring love of some part of the world that they'd like to share, and they bring love, or you know, for young people, or love of how they feel with young people. Those are all good things. Unfortunately, teacher education programs tend to beat it out of them, and then they go to schools that positively finish them off. Yeah. But you, you mentioned just quickly to pick up on a on a thread. You mentioned capitalist education. And you, Kind of caricatured it, but what do you mean by that? Why? I mean, obviously, you live in a capitalist society, and every educational system serves the social slash economic system that embeds it. But but what did you mean? Say a word about capitalist education. Well, 
there's a lot of angles to take on this, but but I will say one thing. First of all, you 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 will hear people say, and it's it's a good critique, and even Frere would say this, um, or uh, Carter G. Woodson, that the way schools are set up is to reproduce um, the kind of colonial and class stratifications of our society. You'll hear people say rightly that um, that uh, schools aren't failing, they're succeeding very well in reproducing. So the, the idea of reproduction is, is a big part of that um, critique. Uh, but let me say something, uh, you know, and we all know the kind of pushing passivity. And, and as you've said before, kids in the more privileged areas or kids at the good private schools, they do have an open-ended curriculum. They do have a curriculum of inquiry. They are being prepared to be the rulers. So uh, they have to have some of that. But let's just, uh, but, but the other thing is, this gets to another let, let, me, let me interrupt you for one minute because I, I was just thinking when you say this that the privileged kids do <laughs> the privileged kids do get uh, opportunities to inquire, to pursue, to ask questions. That's true. But the other part of an education of privilege is that it intentionally puts you to sleep about the condition of others. In other words, it also teaches you that this is the natural order of things. You're here doing well because you're smart and good and all that. So it teaches both things. On the one hand, you have a little more, you know, um, a little more agency, a little more autonomy, but you also have a deepened uh, kind of ingrained sense of, of your worthiness uh, to oh, rule yeah. the world. Oh well, I was I was totally uh, un- underscore that, and and I, I it's a kind of a joke among my friends who teach uh, college freshman um, composition that the kids who come out of the AP track, the kids who are the high end kids in the suburban schools, they don't know how to write. They get to college and they're like, "What do you want me to do? What should I say?" Uh, they don't. They have never been able to uh, express an opinion, because that's not what you learned. I actually sat with some kids at, Ber- at UC Berkeley. I was, I was a, a TA, uh, some students from Lowell High School, and we asked them to write about their life and what brought them there and so on. And Lowell High School is the elite school of the San Francisco Public Schools. And as two of them started talking, they started crying. I mean, crying and said, mm. We've never been asked in four years of our opinion. It was always what's on the test and what am I supposed to do? Now I get to, they told me that was getting me ready for college. Now I get to college and they actually want me to tell about myself. What's up with that? You know, so, so yeah, there is a problem with the uh, education of the elite. But what I was going to say is um, with this idea of reproduction, I also became very disillusioned with the sort of, um, the sort of premier Marxist text on critiquing American education, which is by Bowles and Gintis. The Bowles and Gintis make, uh, do, it's called uh, education, schooling in capitalist America. And they certainly make the point very well of how schools reproduce privilege and, and are set up to do that. And good for them. But the thing that reading Bowles and Gintis does to many people, especially academics, is it makes them believe that nothing can be done at the classroom level. Nothing can be done in schools, because after all, 
this is how it is. And so it's an overly structured, overly determined um, uh, view from someone who's not in the classroom. Because my view, and I think your view too, Bill, is something that actually you helped me think about, is that um, schools, classroom, every classroom is a site of contention, great contention about not only about what's going to happen today, but about who we are and what we're going to, what kind of society we're going to live in. It's one of the only institutions of our society where that's on the table every day. <laughs> that's not on the table every day when you go into uh, Amazon, you know, to the warehouse, uh, but it's actually being discussed and being argued over every day. So I feel like there's a place for for people who want to transform society in a spot where young people are the future and are wondering about this. And you can be part of them developing agency and developing critical uh, perspectives, which also, let me back up, I also don't like it when teachers say, I'm going to teach them critical thinking. These students have critical thinking. Just to get from home to school safely requires critical thinking. So I don't mean teach critical thinking. I mean unleash their ability to critically engage with the school, with with the world. Yeah, you know, and and I I always felt I I feel it so profoundly that when people when the Marxist critique goes to the point of saying after the revolution we'll have liberatory <laughs> schools, that it makes a huge fundamental error because. Where are the what are the institutions where the contestation is being fought out? Certainly, the factory floor, the the fields, uh, the neighborhoods, the you know the other institutions, the army, um, but but certainly the classroom. And yeah. so, being a part of that, being a part of having kids come come around to seeing themselves as agents of history, not passive recipients of history is a pretty exciting thing to see. And that's what I meant when I referenced earlier your journalism students. Yeah. They thought of themselves as agents. I mean, the ruling class teaches agency, and we have a history of culture, we have agency, but the ruling class also writes off the rest of us by our statistical profiles. And right. a teacher like you is able to say, your statistical profile doesn't even begin to tell the truth about you. There's yeah. so much more to tell. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that we uh we make a mistake to to uh, minimize how important these sort of cultural struggles are. I mean, the superstructure that is the the place where people become conscious and fight it out. You know, the um, the other thing I want you to mention because we had talked a minute ago about grading and about and we were talking about kind of the difference between what the privileged get and what the masses get. Um, but one of the other lessons for the privileged is toxic individualism. Yeah. And one of the lessons of your teaching is that we're in it together. And what I liked about Youth Speak and what I liked about Youth Radio was the camaraderie that was built up, the culture of horizontal teaching, you know, yeah. the culture of everybody, you know, we're all in this together. It's a we, it's a me, but it's also a we. That's yeah. exclusively a me. And I think that that's, that's a huge... So you told me once about a group journal you developed and yeah. uh, what pandemonium that caused. Maybe you tell folks a little about that. Well, this is something that, that Amy Crawford and I 
stole somewhere along the way. But but uh, again, part of teaching, part of the fun of teaching is trying this, trying that, you know, seeing what works. And one of the exciting things, and this actually comes from your friend Smokey Daniels, uh, talked about literature circles, creating literature circles, because you want to create lifelong readers. So you want to uh, create something like a, a book group. So kids can pick their own book, and five kids read this book, and five kids read that book, and uh, they talk to each other. And uh, we we create structures for them to do that. Very exciting. It's very uh, cool process. And then they report to each other, like we did literature circles in Latin America. So someone would read Garcia Marquez, someone would read, uh, you know, Isabel Allende. And, and, you know, then we'd get a whole profile of Latin American literature. Um, but one of the artifacts of this process was a group journal. So you're a group of five students and Monday night, one person takes the journal home and they have a little prompt. Right? Write one quote you like. Do, do a little piece of art about something that's happening in the section you're reading this day. Um, talk about what's going on right now. And then when they come back, they meet together, and then the next kid takes it. Maybe he only goes home twice a week. And it rotates around, and the, the journal then becomes this uh, record and this ongoing conversation of their um of their uh process now of course we buy the journals you get the same kind of journals but you know for a group of 30 students you only got to buy six journals <laughs> and uh and then and the teacher you know reads it every three or four weeks and gives feedback i mean this goes on for a while it goes on for about six weeks um but it's a beautiful piece at the end and and it's got artwork and it's got quotes and it's got the students talking to each other, but it's an idea of, the, you know, sort of the horizontal uh, development of knowledge, you know, mm -hmm. the social creation of knowledge, which is, which is what we talk about abstractly, but generally everything's an individual competition. Um, you know, things can go wrong. One time, just in the very last week, one of the students lost the damn journal. <laughs> so then everyone freaks out, you know. But, they're kids. Uh, they're kids. What and you, you have to, you have to, you know, push them. But um, yeah, I, I managed to save some some of those group journals, and I I show them to my to my uh, current teacher candidates because it's inspiring, you know. That I, I actually my garage is full of artifacts of teaching because I just can't let it go, you know. So. Um, it's beautiful stuff. So, so your kids will have to clean it out. I see. Yeah, I know, man. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm trying to keep it cut down. <laughs> All right. Well, just just one last thing about teaching, and then I have one, a couple other directions I'd like to go in. But youth speaks, youth radio. These are amazing things. The other thing you got very involved in, and actually ended up writing a couple books about, is oral history, which yeah. is in the same tradition as yeah. youth speaks and youth yeah. radio. But you were on the board of Voice of Witness for a long time. Maybe you still are. Um, are you still? Uh, not formally. I was, I, we, I was on the education board, yes. Advisory board, right. Mm -hmm. I was on that with you for a while. We wrote yeah, a yeah. couple things together. But you wrote a wonderful book called The Teacher's Guide to Studs Terkel's Working. Yeah. And you, you and Studs Terkel were friends. Talk about oral history and how that fits in your 
kind of philosophy of both your philosophy of education, but also your revolutionary theory. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I always think of when, whenever anyone says theory, I like the, the point that Steve Jobs says is think about your theory of action. What is your theory of action? You think you're going to do this action and what will happen? So, uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't think I had a revolutionary theory, but I do have a theory of action. So I guess well, that's, I, uh, that's, that's as good as it gets. So <laughs> talk about your theory of action. Cause I know your, I know your politics. I've known you for 76 years. So I've known you longer than anybody but our older sister. And I know you, I know what your practice is. I know what your theory of action is, but I'd like you to share it a little bit. Uh, yeah. Well, um, the cool thing about oral history, it did actually come out of the WPA, the Work, Work Products Projects Administration, uh, in the uh, during the uh, depression, and uh, and it probably goes further back than that. Zora Neale Hurston interviewing, uh, you know, Barakun interviewing former slaves, and the idea is, of course, to allow the people to talk and. Um, Studs Terkel, who was a great interviewer and um, public intellectual in Chicago. And your that, friend. And, and became and our friend, friend. yeah. Um, took that and, you know, he would interview famous people. He was really, in, he would interview jazz, uh, other musicians. He he actually kind of helped Mahalia Jackson become public, uh, bring her out of the church and into the public sphere. Uh, he, he, but he did. Uh, he had a very fierce view of of uh, the sort of democratic or of the tape recorder and what you could do with it. And uh, actually, one of the first the first book on the, on his oral history is called Division Street America. I still think it stands up as one of the best. Um, but uh, so history was also something that became an important part of of high school education because young people could do it they could you know you could do a project well we did projects on the holocaust and people would interview holocaust survivors or we did a project on the vietnam war and everyone interviewed someone uh who had an, a relationship to it whether they had been vietnamese who had been there or whether they had been military families or anti-war families. And so the whole class brings together a picture of an era. Um, when we read Grapes of Wrath, uh, I had everyone do, uh, it, it was actually, the public radio did a project called Coming to California. And you had to interview people who came here. Well, every student in my class had someone in their family who came to California, whether they came from New York or Mexico or Vietnam, you know. So uh, then we put together this book of people coming to California and and how that helped us think about Grapes of Wrath and how Grapes of Wrath helped us think about their family. Um, and you think about, you know, uh, T. Bui, uh, the best we could do, the same kind of thing. is like Say what that book is. Say, explain. Uh, T. Bui is a Vietnamese-American woman who writes the story of of herself being a child of uh, refugees uh, from Vietnam, and then goes back to their story in Vietnam and what happened. And you know, it's just it's just quite beautiful because it's it gives a human dimension to all these sort of political categories. 
And it's um, a brilliant graphic novel. And since we yes. want to put a check mark next to the books that we mentioned, so this is yeah, that's that's a that's a really good one. I didn't know. I didn't. I wasn't sure I was going to like it. And then when I started, I'm like, oh my god, this is awesome. But but the reason I bring her up is because um, the stories of immigration, the story of family, the story of where you came from, these are all captured in oral history. So oral history became another uh, leg of, of what was my teaching um, bag of tricks. And, yeah. uh, and yeah. we use it, we use it in our teacher candidates too. You know, I, I teach oral history at the University of Chicago, and I, um, I often focus it on our migration stories because every American has a story of movement, yes. whether it's from Oklahoma to California, or whether it's from South Asia to New York, whatever. Everybody yes. has a story. Yeah. Uh, Roxana has a story of coming from Chile and oh, yeah. uh, the double memoir of her story. But, but you know, what's interesting is that we are in motion. And the first time I got a hint of that was when I was at Teachers College, Columbia University. Uh, Jacob Lawrence exhibit went up at the museum and it was the migration series. Yeah. Black people, African-Americans coming from the South, escaping the regime of lynching and coming to Detroit and Chicago and Pittsburgh during the Great Migration. And my mentor and professor, Maxine Green, took a whole bunch of kids over to see the thing. And then she had them work on their migration stories. And yeah. it didn't matter if you expressed it in dance or oral history or poetry or yeah. song, but everyone had to produce a migration story. Wow. And even someone who is, you know, kind of settled from the Midwest for four generations has a story of motion. Oh yeah. It's a human story. So anyway, yeah. it's really good stuff. And I love that it's a, one of the three legs of your teaching. Well, now you remind me of something else and uh, people who are taking notes for their teaching plan. This is another thing that this brings up. No one's, well, no one's taking notes. But going, go to, going to the museum and, uh, you know, people always say, oh, you have so many contacts. One thing that's important when you're going to be a teacher is constantly being curious and going to theater and yeah. going to the museum and saying, oh, my God, there's an Angela Davis exhibit. We got to get our kids over there. Right. And and oh, we should go see this. We actually read uh, the Oresteia in my class because I saw that that year that was going to be put on at the Berkeley Rep. And so I said, oh, my God, we're, it's going to be at the Berkeley Rep. Let's read this play and then we'll all go see it. And lo and behold, the red education director at the Berkeley Rep was Cliff Mayotte, who, of course, became our friend and became a leader of the education at Voice of Witness. But you can also do this with Photography. We used to, I used to have this project where we would look at different photography of migration, right? And we look at Dorothea Lange. I love Dorothea Lange. Of course, she's wonderful. She does everything about the Dust Bowl, and it fits very well with um, with uh, Grapes of Wrath. But you know, there's some critique of her that has come out from the subject because if you look at the famous picture, the migrant mother. Mm -hmm. The photographer's up high, the mother's looking down, she looks beat up and unhappy, and she's got her kids with her. A very moving, beautiful uh, photograph. The, the woman who was photographed was kind of pissed off about it, because she's like, I was driving across the country, I was on break, I was taking a break, but you know, I had agency, I got all the way across the country. 
and 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 it made it made a sort of a it made her pathetic, and it was it was a photograph for liberal people to say, ah, oh, the pobrecito, the poor people, we got to help them. Uh, but you know, it's okay. It's a beautiful picture, but you have to look at the point of view of the photographer. So then we would look at that. Then we'd look at the migrant children uh, photos by Sebastian Salgado from Brazil, and you know what? Those kids will be standing up, staring right into the camera, like what? What you know, and so they had they were stronger, they were even as as poor as they were, they demonstrated um kind of the uh point of view where their humanity was at the center. So I you know, students can start to see, oh, photography is not just a picture of something there. The the photographer herself has done certain things to frame it a certain way. So all of this works into, you can do the same thing with movies, which we did too. Um, it works into uh, how to write and how to actually enter into the cultural discourse of our world. Well, not only enter into it, but how to be a person of of substance and a person who has a brain and a and a history and a culture and agency. Most important, you have the ability to get things done. Yeah. So I think that that that's a great three-legged stool that we've talked about. Yeah. Just just one one last thing to tie those three legs together. We have this idea of education that it's instrumental, that it's linear, that you move from here to here to here. I often used to say when I was an early childhood teacher, there are some five-year-olds who are reading books, and there are some five-year-olds who are peeing in their pants and they're both normal. And there's some five-year-olds who are peeing in their pants while reading a book. I mean, <laughs> you know, the idea that there's this linear progression called child development is absurd. But if we move away from that linear idea, if we move toward a constructivist idea, then things like, you know, uh, youth speaks or youth radio doesn't disturb a teacher. It gives a teacher a different base to work from. Exactly. I feel the same way with AI. I feel like people are freaking out about, you know, whether a robot can write an essay. Well, if a robot can write an essay and you're worrying too much about how to judge the essay, move on. Yeah. There's, more, <laughs> there's more to do. You know, you're, exactly. you're focused on the wrong idea of education. So those things, you know, churn in me all the time. But, yeah. you know, I, you and I have talked about this for a lifetime. Um, but let's just bring those things together and say a word about what it means to educate free people to create a free society. What should education be if it's not linear, you know, hierarchical, all about judging and sorting, but it's about freeing the mind and freeing the spirit and freeing people to see the world as it is and to do something about it. How do you do that? Oh man. Uh, just, just a small, uh, a small request there for a few thoughts. Um, as I'm trying to uh, come up with an answer, I have to say one thing about kindergarten, which always struck me, because we'd see, I, I taught preschool, uh, you see a four-year-old, and the four-year-old from getting from point A to, they wander here and there, left and right, they twirl around and wander. And the whole task of kindergarten 
is to make them walk in a line. <laughs> That's the number Lillian, one accomplishment. <laughs> Lillian, Weber, Lillian Weber used to say, every kid comes to kindergarten, a question mark and an exclamation point. And the job seems to be to put them into a plain period, you know, and you can watch it, watch, watch my two-year-old grandson. I was watching him on video this morning. And he's not the target of anyone's instruction, <laughs> but he's spending 15 minutes in a sandbox figuring things out, yeah. language, physics, math, um, you know, geography, yeah. everything. Yeah. But nobody made him a target of instruction. So how do you learn anything? Yeah. Well, he learned everything. Yeah, that, that's that's a beautiful point. And, and again, as you were saying about the teachers supposed to show up with a plan, uh, this isn't just like pure anarchy, like, uh, like uh, romanticizing the spontaneous. Uh, there's a lot of work to do. And, 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 but I, I think of freedom uh, as I'm getting older and uh, watching my kids and grandkids grow up. I, I, I actually kind of feel like what what is most worth holding on to, holding dearly, is um, that sort of sense of community, that sense of belonging, a sense of uh, participation in some circle, whether it's a family or a broader group or a um, affinity group or a, an action faction or something, where you are working things out together. I think one of the saddest things about American culture is how isolated and atomized people are and alone, you know, um, trying to figure out what to do. Um, and I, I, I think of freedom not as freedom to be away and totally myself and away from everyone, but actually a freedom to be with others and to be in the presence of, of others and to be in the presence of nature. To, to not get too um, lofty and romantic, but really to to sort of like be there with the world. Uh, I uh, most people do, and I do feel that sense of awe and connection and belonging in, at the ocean. Stand at the ocean, you know, look off the cliffs in Mendocino, and uh, it's humbling, and it also is a sense of freedom. It really is. Um, it's also infuriating when you realize that the powers that be act as if the ocean is an infinite and endless. And so they throw shit in it and they mine it and they kill it. And that's true. I'm, I'm pissed off. Okay. Well, I, it may it may be that the AI overlords are going to require that we clean the ocean up. <laughs> They're doing I hope, a better I job. hope they do. But, <laughs> but I have two other quick questions, not as complicated as the last one. One is that um, you've been a revolutionary activist your, your whole adult life. Um, I mentioned you were a friend of Studs Terkel's when you were in high school. You used to go down and meet him in the lobby of the, I think it was WFMT yeah. um, in Chicago. But but uh, you were, you're a deserter from the U.S. Army. You're a Vietnam era veteran. You yeah. deserted. Um, you tried Proudly. to organize. I'm sorry. Proudly. Proudly deserted. Uh, you came back under Carter's amnesty. You came back into the living world or the open world. Uh, you were in the Weather Underground. You were the head of several um, organizations and a participant in several others. 
Um, so your revolutionary politics should not be ignored in all this. Um, and I would characterize you as, I guess I would characterize you when we were criticizing the first world Marxists a minute ago. I would say you um, have always been an anti-imperialist and someone who fights white supremacy with every breath you take. Say a word about why those are the pillars of your politics. I do think that uh, you and I uh, kind of grew up together and, and riffed off each other. And there's kind of a fascinating story of the two of us and how we uh, came to all of this out of our corny, uh, waspy suburban <laughs> center. I, I know that I remember discovering studs, uh, discovering James Baldwin while we were out there and uh, yeah. pushing each other. But not only that, even like, the, the black radio stations like WVON and WYNR, you could barely hear them in the suburbs except at night. And hearing Aretha sing, I Never Loved a Man. You know, there were all these things which were just calling to us. And, and the world was turning over. You know, we were fortunate to be born in a time when all the, the national liberation struggles were blowing up. And, um, you know... Uh, Malcolm X made the connection of the struggle of black people in the U.S. to the anti-colonial struggles around the world. And it made sense. You know, it was interesting when SNCC said in 1966, you know, white people, you shouldn't just come south and and be sort of patronizing helpers to us. You should go where racism comes from, your communities, and take it on. There's a lot of white people who are freaked out by that and upset and insulted. But I think both you and I were able to say, damn, that's right. That's what we do have to do. It's a much harder job. You know, when I was in the Army, uh, I was an organizer, the anti-war organizer. This is a quick story that illustrates this. The, the, there was a side of the barracks called the Soul Hole. These are all Chicago guys. There's all these South Side Black guys on one side, they all hung together in the soul hole, you know, and they would hang out and drink whiskey and chat when we had free time. And I would hang out there too, because they liked me, because I was a cool white guy. And someone from uh, actually SDS who came down to visit me, I was telling about what I'm doing. And they said, man, in the army or in prison, it's easy to hang out in the soul hole. What about those white guys in the other side of the barracks? I'm like, really? I got to do that. Because <laughs> it was easy to be the acceptable white guy over there. But I, my real job was to turn around to sort of, you know, the white guys. And some of them had some pretty racist, you know, things they were muttering. I had to confront that. Uh, and that was the harder work. You know what I mean? Mm. And and so I was challenged uh, by Special. I don't know if you remember Special. And mm. he said, yeah, you got it. You got it's what you got to do. And mm -hmm. um, and so, as an organizer, you learn these lessons. Like um, there, there, there are um, bigger historical forces, even in who you're having a drink with. <laughs> mm -hmm. And yep. in the real world, you know, you can have all, all the theory you want about about um, class and and how you read Marx or whatever. But in the real world, as W. B. E. B. Du Bois said. The question of the 20th century is the color line. The question of the 21st century is the color line. It is, it is the leading thing is 
the question of colonialism, which leads to capitalism, but it's not the other way around. I mean, Marx thought the most advanced, quote, advanced working class in Germany and England would would be the first ones to socialism. Turns out it's the opposite, that there, there were there was a lot of problems of privilege in the in the privileged areas, and it's the anti-colonial struggle. So that's still the case. I also feel like we're in a terrible, scary time because the U.S. was this huge empire and it's falling. Everyone knows it's collapsing. But a, an empire in collapse is frightening and dangerous. And the Trump phenomenon isn't just because we got that goofy, um, you know, um, TV star, Donald Trump, uh, reality TV dude. It's because th this guy was going to come along because of the panic of white people about the collapse of empire. Our job is to help it go down, to help us become a nation among nations that is not so bossy with the least amount of violence possible. So I still feel the same thing about mm. ending ending the colonial rip that these people have on the world. Why do they have the, the most gigantic military machine and budget that's ever been known in the world? It's not just because of government contracts. It's because they feel that the desperate need to control the world. And here we are in our little classrooms doing the best we can but uh this is this is the world we're born into so you you do what you can all right one last question um when shanaka introduced you she gave a shout out to eileen your partner and maybe you just say a word about eileen abrams and your partnership over decades yeah we've been together now 44 years which is wonderful and, uh, you know, we met doing political work together, actually both in two different organizations that were doing work with uh, black prisoners in, in California prisons. And we met uh, because we saw things together. And then we went into some solidarity work with the African People's Socialist Party in Oakland for years. We were, we were together on that. So we... Uh, you know, Eileen has always pushed me and taught me and tried to uh, help me understand the world better. And she herself, she had worked in law offices, but then she became a college counselor, right. working with people, uh, you know, to figure out their pathway to college or whatever they were going to do post um high school. And even now, we're both retired, but now she has done a lot of work with people either coming out of uh, prison or coming out of, um, you know, juvenile situations. And right. she, she does amazing work. So we're still in love. And um, we're going to go out and celebrate this afternoon. Great. Well, I think Shanaka shouted her out because all the kids that you were teaching also knew Eileen yeah. as a as a very sympathetic counselor and somebody who not only knew her stuff but knew the kids and helped exactly. them on the on the path to the next step. Absolutely. Right, well listen, Rick, we we should pull it to a close. It's been a great talking to you as usual. I will see you soon, I'm sure. Um I'll be in the Bay Area. But thanks okay. so much for taking the time. Love you. Okay. Take care. Happy Father's Day.
Okay, folks, let's give thanks that we're alive and dancing the dialectic at this specific moment on the clock of the universe. There may have been better times to be a revolutionary, probably true, and there have certainly been worse times, but this is our time, and it's the only time we've got. So let's look unblinkingly at the society as it is, and let's get busy in projects that reimagine, repair, and rebuild this broken world. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the Generative and Provocative Podcast, Ergo, co-conspirators Roxana Espos and Pallas Shaw. Go forward, keep rising, and make your brief time in the light an intentional search for both joy and justice. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.